0: This is James Young with Morgan & Morgan. You're listening to the Whistleblower Attorneys Podcast, where we discuss the history of whistleblowers and how you can uncover and report fraud against the government. Brought to you by whistleblowerattorneys.com. Welcome to episode three of our six-part podcast on whistleblower actions. In today's episode, we'll discuss the types of cases that can make up a Keytam case, as well as other types of whistleblower programs. I'd like to begin by going back to something we touched on in episode one, the purpose of the modern False Claims Act. The False Claims Act was designed to incentivize people with knowledge of fraud against the government to come forward. The beauty of the False Claims Act coupled with our humongous government, is that the nature of the fraud is virtually unlimited. Start by defining government. While the False Claims Act itself is focused on the federal government, many states have enacted their own False Claims Acts. Even further, some cities and counties have enacted similar laws and ordinances. So, when we use the phrase fraud against the government, the term government is really quite broad. Now that we have a sense of the term government, think about the things that a government does. Almost every facet of our lives are touched by the government in some way. The food we eat, the roads we drive on, the schools we attend, the taxes we pay, our health care, military, energy, environment, you name it. So, with such a broad base of programs to work on, it's impossible to know all of the regulations that may be in play. It's true a great majority of these cases relate to health care, probably 70 to 80 percent, but key TAM lawyers need to be ready to adapt and learn entirely new regulatory areas. Since it's the predominant topic, though, let's do spend some time drilling down into healthcare care fraud. Healthcare fraud can involve any government health care program, such as Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, or even the federal employee's health benefit program. It can also include state-funded programs, like pediatric programs, or age and wage-dependent state programs. The types of scams cover every aspect of healthcare itself, from dispatching ambulances to dispensing medications, from wheelchairs to walkers, from hospice to medical devices. We'll touch briefly on some of the more common examples, but bear in mind, there's truly no limit to where fraud can intersect with government healthcare. Let's begin with community mental health centers. These have been rife with kickback schemes, as well as upcoding the level of service provided or misrepresenting the provider of the service as being more qualified than they actually were. There are great examples of group therapy being billed as individual therapy. Now, it sounds relatively harmless, but the amounts add up quickly when a group of 15 patients are billed for 15 individual one-hour therapy sessions, when in fact, They all sat in one room for an hour with one therapist. Prescription drugs form some of the largest ketams in history and involve off-label marketing. These cases have lost some luster recently after the Supreme Court limited actions to where the manufacturers actually lie, not merely promote off-label. Off-label promotion is when a drug manufacturer promotes its drugs for uses which have not been approved by the FDA. For example, an antipsychotic medication might be promoted to treat postpartum depression in women, without it actually being approved by the FDA, let alone proven safe or effective. Similarly, medical devices have served as the basis for very large settlements recently. There was a national settlement just last year involving internal defibrillators. The manufacturer worked with doctors and hospitals to overpromote the use of these devices in patients who didn't really need them or who didn't need the particular brand. Durable medical equipment, or DME, is one of the oldest areas for healthcare fraud. You've seen ads on TV, call us now for your free knee brace or trade in your old wheelchair for a new electric rascal at no cost to you. Even oxygen therapy has been riddled with fraud. These DME providers are notorious. They sell, 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 but they also fraud, fraud, fraud. Meaningful use. Part of the Affordable Care Act included incentive money for hospitals to implement electronic health records in a meaningful way. There have been numerous instances where hospitals have reported implementation but only lied in order to receive the money. Also, hospice. Unfortunately, hospice is not immune from fraud. There are numerous cases involving kickbacks for patient referrals, as well as census padding by admitting or recertifying patients who are not in actual need of hospice. Similarly, skilled nursing facilities have been up the severity of their patient populations for years. The extent and types of rehab services they provide is often grossly overstated. Laboratories and x rays have been a hot topic in KETAMs for years now. They're full of kickbacks, overbilling, unbundling, etc. Perhaps no area is hotter in terms of fraud in healthcare than home healthcare. Due to the lack of physical facilities, it's almost impossible to catch this fraud in the act. There are over-admissions and false certifications, kickbacks for patient referrals, and upcoding of patient severity in order to deliver rehab services that aren't truly required. Oncology is not immune from these frauds as well. The biggest trend in oncology fraud is failing to properly supervise therapy. Radiation oncologists are fairly rare, so they try to expand their reach by conducting therapy sessions at the same time in multiple locations. The regulations require actual presence on-site, when these complex and expensive therapies are delivered. They'll often bill for therapies provided at locations they're not physically at. Another increasing area of fraud is wound care. Privately managed wound care centers are a real hot spot. There are only a handful of players in this space after consolidation and mergers. They'll overstate the severity of wounds and modify diagnoses in order to provide expensive hyperbaric oxygen therapy. They'll also upcode wound debridements from selective to surgical. The cost impact on the system is tremendous. Another area popular for fraudsters is infusion therapy. Often done in outpatient clinics, infusion therapy can overstate the time spent being infused. These services are paid on a clock count basis, and overstating the time is an easy way to increase profits. Perhaps, most importantly and universally, we should talk about kickbacks and the Stark laws. We could spend several podcasts just talking about kickbacks and Stark. Kickbacks come in many forms, but in every kickback case, healthcare providers are provided some material benefit in return for other providers prescribing or using their products. In most instances, kickbacks are illegal. Doctors are supposed to decide on the most appropriate treatments for their patients without consideration of their own financial interests. Federal laws prohibit kickbacks and improper compensation to doctors and other healthcare providers as specified by the Stark Statute. Because those financial incentives result in medically unnecessary treatments, and the use of more expensive products. That in turn results in higher costs to patients, Medicare, Medicaid, and other healthcare insurance programs. Under the anti kickback statute, a company commits fraud when it offers doctors or other providers financial incentives to use their products or services. Illegal kickbacks can be cash payments, but often include other items of monetary value, such as gifts free or discounted supplies, tickets to sporting events or concerts, and travel. Hospitals and other companies often try to disguise these kickbacks as legitimate payments. For example, they might pay doctors inflated rates for speaking engagements or pay above fair market value to lease office space. Even if there's a lawful basis for a payment, the financial arrangement may still be fraudulent if one purpose of the payment is to influence a doctor or healthcare provider to use the company's products or services. Another law, called the Stark Statute, regulates the financial relationship that a physician or other provider can have with companies that sell healthcare care items or services. When doctors or other healthcare care providers benefit financially from referring patients to a particular hospital or testing center, they are incentivized to send patients for medically unnecessary, sometimes dangerous treatments. The Stark statute tries to prevent subjecting patients to unnecessary treatments by making it illegal for physicians to refer Medicare or Medicaid patients to any entity with which it has a financial relationship. As I said, we can spend an entire podcast talking about kickback and Stark, and that's a lot to cover, but it's just the tip of the health fraud iceberg. For now, let's cover a few non-healthcare cases so you can understand just how broad these TAMs can be. Let's start by discussing military contractors. As we discussed in the first episode, the historical basis for the False Claims Act was Civil War procurement fraud. Unfortunately, as our military budget has grown, so too has the extent and type of fraud. Inflated prices, inferior work, padding bills or hours worked, alleging a false status as a veteran, minority, or woman-owned business. These are all scams prevalent in the military contracting community. Military contracting claims are second behind healthcare in terms of both dollars collected and cases filed. Beyond military contractor claims, government grant claims have been rising sharply. Usually reserved for university and research institutions, there was a rapid expansion of grant programs under President Obama and the stimulus plan. There were literally billions of dollars in grants available with a very quick turnaround award times and no one watching the money. Another area of fraud is tariff and duty fraud. When companies import goods or raw materials into this country, they're charged a tariff or duty on the items. As you might imagine, the extent of imports is so overwhelming that a great degree of trust is built into the system for reporting the types of products brought in and the amounts owed. Often, the fraud lies in the classification of the item. So, rather than calling finished stainless steel rods what they are and paying a 15 cent per rod duty, an importer may call them raw steel and pay no duty at all. Another, often overlooked, area of fraud within the federal government is the Davis-Bacon Act. In some federal contracts regarding construction, the Davis-Bacon Law requires that a fully loaded prevailing wage be paid to all workers. Contractors wanting to make more money can win jobs by promising to pay Davis-Bacon wages and then pay much less, often using unqualified labor in the process. Beyond these typical false claim cases, there are other agencies and regulatory bodies that have established their own whistleblower reward programs. We'll examine two of these programs, the IRS Whistleblower Program and the SEC Dodd-Frank Whistleblower Program. In December 2006, President George W. Bush signed into law the Tax Relief and Health Care Act of 2006. This law authorized the Internal Revenue Service to pay rewards to whistleblowers. Section 406 of the Tax Relief and Health Care Act of 2006 provides for whistleblower reforms and is the law under which the IRS's whistleblower program was created. The IRS whistleblower law modeled on the modern False Claims Act provides for two types of awards. If the taxes, penalties, interest, and other amounts in dispute exceed $2 million and other qualifications are met, the IRS will pay 15 to 30% of the amount collected. If the case deals with an individual, that person's annual gross income must exceed $200,000. If the whistleblower disagrees with the outcome of a claim, he or she can appeal to the tax court. The rules governing this part of the program are found in the Internal Revenue Code Section 7623 under Whistleblower Rules. I mention this because private individuals can easily look up these rules and file claims on their own. The IRS also has an award program for whistleblower cases that don't meet this threshold. The awards under this program are less, often with a maximum award of 15% up to a cap of $10 million. In addition, these awards are discretionary. And the informant cannot dispute the outcome in tax court as they can in the first instance. The IRS whistleblower program is not a tip line. Awards are being made on the basis of a whistleblower coming to the IRS with a considerable amount of solid information in hand. Examples of such evidence might include cash checks or invoices, numbers to hidden bank accounts, emails, internal audits, contracts, video, or audio tape. Unlike K-TAM cases, the central vehicle which begins an IRS whistleblower case is not a complaint at all. Rather, it's a simple form, a Form 211. People ask us all the time, why should I use your law firm for this program when a lawyer is not required? Without question, there are people out there who are sophisticated enough and have highly detailed information they could put into a Form 211 that would result in a recovery. I will say, though, that such people represent a very small percentage of the total universe of people with information about IRS fraud. A tiny fraction of the cases filed ever result in a recovery. Unless you're one of the highly sophisticated people who really has inside scoop and knows what they're doing, I encourage you to consult a lawyer familiar with the process, and with the types of information the IRS is looking for. Our approach to these cases is pretty similar to our KETAM work. We collect all the facts and evidence in the possession of our clients, and then begin to research and organize the claims into a Form 211. We often utilize outside consultants, such as CPAs or forensic accountants, to support our filing. After a complaint has been submitted, the IRS will not tell the whistleblower or their lawyer about actions taken in the case, only if the case is open or has been closed. If a case has been closed and is payable, the whistleblower will be informed of this fact and the amount they're owed. If the case is denied, the IRS may not say why it has been denied other than it might be because the IRS already had information from another source, an audit or investigation was conducted but there was no finding of liability, A finding of liability was made and sustained, but there were no assets collected. Or, a finding of liability was made, but the taxpayer prevailed in an administrative proceeding. Be aware, all whistleblower awards are subject to federal tax reporting and withholding requirements. The size of whistleblower awards under the IRS program are determined by the IRS within the range of 10 to 30%. If a whistleblower disagrees with the outcome of a whistleblower claim or award, he or she can appeal to the tax court. There's no limit on the dollar amount of the award, but a reduced award of up to 10% can be made where the information provided is based upon information derived from judicial hearings, administrative hearings, news media, government reports, audits, investigations, or if the whistleblower themselves planned and initiated the tax fraud scheme. Beyond the IRS whistleblower program, the The Securities Exchange Commission created its own program to incentivize people coming forward with information about fraud. The SEC whistleblower program went into effect on July 21, 2010, when President Obama signed the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. The SEC whistleblower law prohibits retaliation by employers against employees who provide the SEC with information about possible securities violations. This is huge. The SEC has gone so far as to penalize companies that attempt to preempt whistleblowing with contract provisions. So, for example, when a company institutes a gag clause or confidentiality agreement among its employees, attempting to restrict them from reporting to the SEC, that is against the law. Who is eligible for an award under the SEC whistleblower program? Well, any person who voluntarily provides the SEC with original information about a violation of securities laws is eligible. You don't need to be a company insider or employee of the offending company to be an SEC whistleblower, nor do you even need to be a U.S. citizen. For any award to be triggered, however, SEC action based on your information must result in monetary sanctions over $1 million. More than one person can be eligible for a whistleblower award in a covered action but companies or organizations do not qualify for whistleblower awards. To be considered as providing original information to the SEC, a whistleblower must derive their information from information which is not publicly available. Similar to the IRS whistleblower program, The SEC whistleblower program begins by submission of a form. This form, known as form TCR for tip, complaint, or referral, can be submitted two ways. First, online through the Commission's portal or by mailing or faxing the form to the SEC. Interestingly, the SEC actually allows whistleblowers to submit information anonymously without the whistleblower providing any identity or contact information. However, in order to collect an award, you must be represented by and provide contact information for an attorney. You must also complete the TCR form under penalty of perjury. So, as we wrap up this episode, let's circle back on some of the takeaways. Each aspect of healthcare has the potential for fraud. Although healthcare fraud rules the day, there are almost unlimited areas to explore with other key TAMs. The IRS and SEC, among others, have unique programs available to whistleblowers. So far, we've talked about the history of the False Claims Act, the evolution of whistleblowers, and the types of government programs that can lead to false claims cases being filed, as well as some special programs like the IRS and SEC whistleblower programs. On our next podcast, we'll dig into the investigative techniques used to build these cases in a way that makes sense for the government.